It's a wonderful chapter we have here. First Samuel 14. Everything that God says in his word will come to pass. And those things that, as we read through the chapter, belong to a past occasion. We can still say with emphasis, yes, everything came to pass exactly, exactly as God had ordained. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And so tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not Jonathan was gone. And between the passages, we're talking about these high mountain crags now, in case you wonder what sort of passages we're talking about, or if uh, the Philistines' gathering was on the other side, if that sort of thing, uh, as you read it, isn't all too clear to you, just picture these high mountainous areas. Uh, deep ravines in between. So there is such a thing as this position on this side of the mountain and then way beyond that ravine there's the other, other side. Uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer on this side and uh, the Philistine yonder on the far side. You can just see it so clearly. And we were in Israel, oh, more than once. We went to Mizpah and we were just looking across this very area, as well as other areas. But as Jonathan slipped away, he was going to do something for the Lord, and he slipped away to do it. Verse 4, And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over onto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side, a sharp rock on the other side. Rugged mountain peaks. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other Sene. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. These areas are still there today. The hillsides, just as it was then. 
And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, this is one of the maybes of, of the Bible. You can follow through with a line of them here, there, and different places. It may be that the Lord will work for us where there's no restraint to the Lord, save by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. And said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and will not go up unto them. But, but, if they say unto us, or if they say thus, Come up, Unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for... The Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet. You can see it was rugged and steep. The going was hard. It wasn't a simple pathway to negotiate. No, climbing up on his hands and his feet. And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And his armor-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, was about twenty men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might ply. And there was trembling in the host. That's the army or the encampment of the Philistines. It was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So, it was a very great trembling. Praise the Lord for his precious word. The Lord bless the reading and the preaching of it this day. Amen.
Now let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 46 once again, and just the opening three verses of the psalm by way of introduction. If you've been with us in recent weeks, we've just started a little series, very simply, Themes from Psalm 46. It's a beautiful psalm, and there are many wonderful themes within the psalm that take us throughout the Word of God. Psalm 46, verse 1, you know the words so well, I'm sure. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not be fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. Let's unite our hearts together, please, in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come again to thy throne of grace, we thank thee for the word of God. We thank thee, Lord, for this inspired book that God himself has given. We rejoice today that thou art the author of this sacred volume. And Lord, we come to thee now in the name of thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, praying especially for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need these so much, Lord. Some here today are facing difficult circumstances and situations, and we pray today that we might know and prove that truly God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Continue with us now and grant the infilling of the Holy Spirit. May everything <coughs> dovetail together for thy glory. We humbly pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Verses 2 and 3 in Psalm 46 make mention of the earth being removed, the mountains being carried into the midst of the sea, and the mountains shaking. It speaks to us today of earthquakes. And last Lord's Day morning, we considered Exodus 19, the great earthquake that took place whenever the children of Israel arrived at Mount Sinai. God had redeemed them by precious blood, brought them across the Red Sea, and now the Lord is going to show them how He wants them to live in this present world. And today we're looking at 1 Samuel 14, where we are introduced to another earthquake, this time at a place called Gibeah. Verse 15, 1 Samuel 14 says, There was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Sometimes in life, whether we're facing battles, barrenness, or blasting, it's our heart's desire, and we long that God would step in, and that God would do something, and that God would do something big and change the situation that confronts us. During times of battle, times of blasting, and times of barrenness, we just long for God's intervention. And oftentimes, God does step in, and God does intervene in supernatural ways. But sometimes we just want to sit back 
and wait and do very little and just wait for God to do something. During the days that we read of here in 1 Samuel, the children of Israel have insisted in getting a king of their own. And in a sense, they had rejected God's order. And oftentimes, even as believers, we insist in getting things done our way and in having our way and in getting our own way. And often it results in barrenness. Whenever Israel insisted in getting a king, Samuel warned them of what would happen whenever they would get their king. But nevertheless, they insisted in getting a king, and they got King Saul. And the psalmist, speaking of that, said in Psalm 106 and verse number 15, God gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. And often, whenever we insist in getting our way, sometimes God allows us to get our way. And in so doing, barrenness enters in. And Saul, here in 1 Samuel 14, is encamped at Gabeah. It says in verse 2, Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gabeah under a pomegranate tree. Saul, who has promised to lead his people, is sitting back, resting on his laurels, doing very, very little, all the while at the other side, the Philistines have set up their outpost or their garrison. And so Israel as a nation was sitting on a knife edge and the Philistines were planning an attack on the other side of Gibeah. But God graciously intervened and sent this great earthquake that we read about in verse number 15 and brought great deliverance that day to the children of Israel. In fact, it says at the end of verse 23, God or the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth Avon. But God did not send the earthquake until Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his armor bearer had stepped out in faith and were willing to put their lives in the line to fight the Lord's battles. And so as we think today about this great earthquake at Gabeah, the mountain shaking with the swelling thereof, I want to consider what happened before the earthquake came, then what happened when the earthquake came, and then what took place immediately after the earthquake. So first of all, the antecedent to the earthquake. Now there's a big word, antecedent. An antecedent is simply something that existed or took place before a certain event. And we read about the earthquake in verse 15, and then in the first 14 verses, the events leading up to that earthquake. David Livingstone, the great missionary, once said, I will go anywhere so long as it is forward. And Jonathan is a young man, a young servant of the Lord, who wants to go forward in the work of God and in the service of the Lord. You have there in verse number four, the beginning of Jonathan's venture. Look at verse number one. Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man that bare his armor, come. 
Let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. Jonathan's venture. He recognizes the Philistines have camped over at the other side of Gabeah. It's only a matter of time before they attack us. My father Saul seems to be quite at ease and doesn't really want to do all that much. And many people are content to rest upon their laurels. But Jonathan recognizes something must be done. And he enters out in this great venture. Now, in many respects, it looked for just Jonathan and his armor bearer like a suicide mission. Looks like they're just going to throw their lives away and become a prey to the Philistines. How could two relatively young and inexperienced men take on a large consignment of Philistine soldiers on their own? Jonathan's venture. But he wanted to be something for God. He wanted to do something for God. And maybe you're a young person in the meeting today. I want to challenge you to do ventures and exploits for God. Endeavor to be something for Jesus Christ. And endeavor to do something for Jesus Christ. As you think about Jonathan's venture here, you'll notice humble beginnings. Humble beginnings. Zechariah 4.10 asks the question, Who hath despised the day of small things. And we are certainly living in a day of small things. We're maybe not seeing all that much happening in the church of Jesus Christ. And many there are like Saul, and they're content to sit back and to do very little. But Jonathan recognized he needed to do something. And his armor bearer as well recognized, I want to do something as well. In my limited experience, and I'm sure you're the same, maybe you have learned not to expect too much from people. There are so many in our day and generation that are at ease in Zion. They don't really want to do all that much for God. They don't really have a sense of expectancy or a sense of urgency. But Jonathan and his armor bearer were men that were enthusiastic for the Lord. Whenever you get even one or two individuals keen for God, with faith in the Lord, and zeal in their souls, there's no telling what can be done. It says at the end of verse number one that Jonathan told not his father. And then at the end of verse number three, the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. Jonathan didn't need an audience to serve the Lord. He didn't need people to come and slap him in the back and, and usher him on and encourage him and cheer him on. Jonathan was not a glory hunter. Jonathan and his young armor bearer were content to go out quietly, not seeking any position or honor for themselves, and certainly not needing any distractions or even any advice from people who are standing on the sidelines and doing Nothing. Humble beginnings. But you'll notice as well in Jonathan's venture, not just humble beginnings, but holy boldness. Verse number four, 
and between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over onto the Philistines' garrison. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. They went along this little narrow passageway. It took them up between two sharp rocks, two little mountains, one on the left and one on the right. One was called Bozes, which means shining, and the other was called Sene, which means a thorn. And literally, Jonathan and his young armor-bearer find themselves now between a rock and a hard place. But I love the words of Jonathan in verse number 6. Look at what it says in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over onto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Did you notice the words of Jonathan there? It may be that God will work for us. Jonathan is not presuming anything. Jonathan turns round to his young armor-bearer, just two of them, as they look from that perspective down into the valley and they see the Philistines' garrison, Jonathan turns around to his young armor-bearer and says, let's go and take on these pagans. Maybe God will work for us. But you know something? Even if he doesn't, let's go anyway. Let's do the right thing. And let's not just do it if it's deemed to be successful. It may be that God will work for us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going, I'm still going to press the battle to the gates. Are you coming with me? I love that type of holy boldness. Reckless abandonment to the will of God. There are many Christians today, and they will only ever go forward if it looks to be successful in the eyes of the world. But Jonathan has gone out in secret. And whether the Lord intervenes or works for him or gives him victory, as far as Jonathan is concerned, it's irrelevant. I need to do the right thing. I need to be the right person. And whether God grants victory or success is largely speaking irrelevant. Just like Daniel's three friends, whenever they turned around to the king of Babylon and said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But if not, if he does not deliver us, be it known unto you, King, we will not bow and worship your graven image. They weren't concerned about success. They were more concerned about the glory of God, more concerned about obedience, more concerned about doing the right thing. You know, the old hymn writer said in his great hymn, Courage, brother, do not stumble. Though thy path be dark as night, there's a star to guide the humble. Trust in God and do the right. Dr. Kent Hughes, an American preacher, pastor, put out a little book in the 1980s quite simply entitled, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. Liberating Ministry from the success syndrome. Like so many pastors, he got so taken up with numbers and adherents and members and people coming in and church growth numerically that he lost sight temporarily of what ministry was all about. And sometimes we can have this sense 
that we need to look successful in the eyes of the world or else we will not go forward with God. That was not the thinking of Jonathan. Humble beginnings, holy boldness, Notice as well, heartfelt belief. He says at the end of verse number 6, there is no restraint, no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. He recognized God does not need a multitude of people to bring about victory. There are no restraints, no limitations, and no restrictions with the Lord. As one old missionary once said, one man with God is a majority. And there's no limitations or restrictions with God. Jonathan is really proving the words yet to be written in Psalm 46. God is our refuge. God is our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore will not be fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. I love the faith of Jonathan. No restraint to the Lord. Even if there's only one or two of us, God is still able to give the victory. Isn't that what Charles Wesley wrote in his great hymn? Give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. Give me the childlike praying love that longs to build thy house again. And as Jonathan speaks here about his heartfelt belief, you'll notice that the young armor bearer says in verse number 7, Do all that is in thy heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. There is a young man that maybe doesn't have as much privilege or responsibility or gift or talent as Jonathan, but he's saying to Jonathan, Jonathan, I'm behind you. I'm with you. I'm as committed as you are. I want to cooperate with you. I want to surrender my life to the Lord and submit myself to His will. May God raise up such individuals. Yellowstone National Park, over towards the east coast of the United States, there's a geezer called Old Faithful. You know, a geezer, I don't know, if you live in England, a geezer's probably some guy that's a little bit edgy. If you're a plumber, a geezer, something you have below the sink or in the closet or in the bathroom. But a geezer is one of those fountains where hot springs are underneath the crust of the earth and the hot water shoots up. And in Yellowstone National Park, there are many such geezers. But there's one called Old Faithful. And it's not the largest geezer in Yellowstone National Park. It's not the one that shoots the water highest up into the air. But it's simply called Old Faithful because you can depend on it periodically to shoot that water up into the sky. And they call it Old Faithful. You can set your watch by it. It's dependable. It's always there, Old Faithful. And that's the type of Christian that God is looking for. That's the type of Christian that God delights in. Not Christians that have great ability or great talent or great intellect but people that are dependable, people that are there in their place, people that are steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. The Bible says about the man that is planted in the house of God or the individual that is planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. We are living in days of superficiality 
where people are so easily moved and uprooted and distracted and faraway fields are green and they want to go where the great crowds are, Jonathan's armor bearer was willing to stand by Jonathan because this is the right place to be. This is the right thing to do. May God help us to be faithful and may God help us to be faith-filled. William Carey, whenever he went to the mission field in China, and the world stood behind him and said he was throwing away his life, he was wasting his time, God would convert the heathen with him or without him. William Carey made that great statement, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Jonathan's venture. And then as well, you've got Jonathan's victory. In verse 8 through to verse number 10, you see his tactics. He says in verse number 8, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves on them. We will allow them to see us. And if they say unto us, Come unto you, or tarry until we come unto you, we will stand still and not go up to them. But if they say, Come unto us, then will we go up, for the Lord hath delivered them out or into our hand. And Jonathan here is looking to the Lord for guidance. God is looking to the Lord for providence. He recognizes our God knows the way forward. And let's ask God for a sign. Let's pray that God will either open the door or close the door and show us the right way forward. The book of Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And maybe today you need to be like Jonathan and ask God to lead and guide. Lord, open the right door. Close the wrong one. Show me the way, Lord. Jonathan's tactics. And then there's also Jonathan's triumph. Verses 12 and verse number 13. At the end of verse 12, he says, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And they began to slay the Philistines. In fact, they killed 20 of them, just the two of them and the Lord, and they experienced great victory. Jonathan's venture, Jonathan's victory, Jonathan's virtue. It seems that Jonathan was a virtuous young man, as was his armor-bearer. Nobody else went apart from Jonathan and this other individual, just two of them. But the Lord was in the midst. The Savior said, where two or three are met together, there am I in the midst of them. I don't know about you, but I would rather be in the minority and have the Lord with me than to be in the majority and be in the popular crowd and not be with the Lord. We often point the finger at Peter for sinking in the water and getting his eyes off the Lord. But sometimes we forget that Peter was the only one who stepped out of the boat in the first place. Jonathan and this young man were willing to do ventures for God, the antecedent to the earthquake. Notice, secondly, the arrival of the earthquake. The very thing that brought deliverance could have caused Jonathan to tremble himself. Sometimes we pray, Lord, I want you to do something. Lord, I want you to step in. And often whenever God steps in, he shakes things up. 
And sometimes there can be little earthquakes in our own lives and in our own circumstances. And they can cause us, perhaps, to be afraid. This earthquake was a divine intervention. God sent the earthquake. And first there were two who were willing to give everything and risk their lives to go through with God. And then whenever they went forward, and only then did God intervene. And that is often the Lord's way. He asks us to step forward in faith before he steps down in intervention. He asks us to go forward and take that step of faith before the Lord opens a way. But nevertheless, there was divine intervention. And do we not in our day and generation need divine intervention? Do we not need God to intervene in our nation? Do we not need God to intervene in our lives and in our homes? Do we not need God to intervene in our churches? God only sent intervention whenever there was a couple of individuals willing to go through with God who didn't even know whether God would intervene or not. It may be that God will work for us, but let's go forward and see what happens. And then there was divine intervention. Not only divine intervention, but this was divine initiative. This was something that only God could do. Jonathan can go forward. Jonathan can take his armor and his weapons with him. He can take that armor bearer. They can pray. They can seek to do battle. They can seek to fight, but they cannot produce an earthquake. God is now doing something that is supernatural. God is now doing something that is unprecedented. And often that's the Lord's way. The hymn writer said, and we quote it so often, God moves in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. And sometimes God's intervention and God's initiative is perhaps in a way that we have never anticipated or expected. I don't think Jonathan was expecting an earthquake. I don't think his armor bearer was expecting those mountains that they were standing between to be shaken to the core. God's way of intervening is often different than what we expect. Look at the gospel itself. A world that is lost and broken. And a little babe born in a stable in Bethlehem who will one day go to a cross and die between two thieves. And that's God's way of saving your soul and saving mine. Divine intervention, divine initiative. But this earthquake was also a divine illustration. An illustration of God's sovereignty that he is sovereign over all, even over the very elements themselves. God is a God who can cause the earth to tremble. Now, sometimes we find the very idea of the sovereignty of God in all of life's finer points and details, we find that very difficult, don't we, to accept? That if God sends an earthquake into our lives, that God is sovereign in that. That if trial comes, or bereavement comes, or illness, or adversity, or whatever it might be, that God is sovereign, and all things are under His feet. 
and not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father. This earthquake was a divine illustration of God's sovereignty. Also a divine illustration of God's strength. That God is able to shake the heavens and the earth in order to scatter the enemy. And it's also an illustration of God's security. Why did God send this earthquake? It was to protect Jonathan and his armor bearer and the entire nation of Israel. It's like Paul says in those familiar verses in Romans, all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And even whenever the earth shakes and the mountains seem to be carried into the midst of the sea and the world around us is falling apart, God is there protecting his people. I see in this great story here in 1 Samuel 14, this earthquake, the antecedent to the earthquake, the arrival of the earthquake. But notice in conclusion the aftermath of the earthquake. If the narrative stopped at verse number 15, we would wonder, what has God done? What's God doing? Here's Jonathan, this armor-bearer. They're fighting this battle. They seem to be in the victory side. Things seem to be going well. And all of a sudden, in the midst of it all, there's an earthquake. You would think that that would be a hindrance. But why did God send this earthquake? What was God doing? And what happened after the earthquake came? Well, you'll notice in verse number 16, there was disarray. Among the Philistines, it says in verse number 16, at the end of the verse, the multitude melted away and they went on beating down one another. Verse 20 ends with the words, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great discomfiture. And it says in verse number 19 that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased and the Philistines were put to confusion. And this earthquake completely had them in disarray. And the Lord shook things up so they turned the one against the other and they didn't even know who they were fighting and the whole thing came tumbling down just as the Lord did at Babel. Just as the Lord did in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as the Lord will do at the end of time, whenever Babylon rises up again, and there's a totalitarian, globalist, anti-God agenda and a dictatorship, and the Word of God says that the Lord will bring the whole thing tumbling down. God will send disarray amongst His enemies. The Word of God asks the question, Back there in the little book of Psalms, or the book of Psalms, Psalm 2 and verse number 1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them. In derision. You can never fight against the Lord and prosper. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we can think there's an easier way. The Christian life is difficult. We're between a rock and a hard place. It's narrow. It's uphill. It's difficult. 
But if we trust in the Lord, God will certainly give us the victory. The aftermath of the earthquake, disarray among the Philistines, but also deliverance for Israel. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. What a verse. The Lord not only saved Jonathan and his armor bearer, but even Saul and the armies of Israel and the very nation of Israel was saved that day. How quickly things can turn around. How quickly God can intervene. God can save his people collectively, as he did in the days of Hezekiah. The Bible says whenever God sent revival in those days, that the thing was done suddenly, just as he did for his church in the day of Pentecost. Suddenly there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and God sent a great revival. But in your life and in mine, God can intervene suddenly and God can give deliverance individually. Maybe your circumstances are hard. Maybe your circumstances are difficult. Maybe you've almost lost faith and hope and trust in God. Maybe your family, your children, your seed are far, far away from God. Well, God can intervene very, very suddenly. And God can change things suddenly. And God can bring deliverance and salvation suddenly. The Lord saved Israel that day. While God sent the earthquake, Jonathan, I'm sure, could testify, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not be fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. The earthquake came for his benefit, deliverance, and blessing. Friends, time is gone. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's have a word of prayer as we close the meeting. May God bless you. May God write his word upon our hearts. Let's seek the Lord just now. Let's pray. <clears throat> Loving God and everlasting Father, we thank thee today that thou art our God and our Savior, Thou art sovereign, O God, in all of thy ways. And we pray that you'll help us to be like Jonathan and to go forward and to go through and to go up with God. And we pray that you'll use us in these days to do a work for thyself. O God, we do pray for divine intervention in our land and in our nation, in our churches, Lord, in our homes and in our families, in this very city. We pray that God will come and that there might be a shaking, and that, Lord, you'll put the enemy to flight, and that you'll step down and save your people, and save a multitude of souls. Continue with us now, and take us our separate ways in safety. Now may the blessing of God the Father, and the love of God the Son, and the fellowship and the comfort of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with us now and forevermore. In Jesus' precious name, amen.